Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that asks the question, can we create and thrive in an unprecedented time? I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Regular listeners may know this podcast is on a sort of hiatus, but I said that whenever I came across a fresh idea that I thought listeners would benefit from hearing about, I would try to waylay that person and record a new episode. And that person this time around is Dan Fromer, and I will introduce him in a moment. But folks, if you're listening in April 2020, perhaps for months afterwards, we are in unknown territory. It's rough for everybody, and the most vulnerable people in the world are suffering even more than usual. But the coronavirus leaves nobody untouched except the wealthy, and and that's not us, not me, for certain. One of the advantages of pursuing an independent creative path is setting your own parameters. I hope you're all finding some benefit to that right now. I hope you're all safe and that you and your families and loved ones are well. I've been isolated for over four weeks now in Seattle, and my family and I are all doing very well, as best as we could possibly be doing. So I send you my love as much as a podcast host can through the parasocial medium of podcasting. But I appreciate my listeners, and I appreciate all of you, and I always like hearing uh, from everybody, no matter how infrequently the show goes on the air. So let me now introduce our actual topic of discussion, Dan Fromer, who is the founder and editor of The New Consumer a publication about how and why people spend their time and money. Hello, Dan. Hi. It's so great to have you on here. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Big fan of the show. Well, thank you. Coming out of retirement because uh, I found myself uh, months ago trying to find new things where people weren't bound to Kickstarter, Patreon, maybe even Substack, which is kind of a rising thing, to um, all the kind of ways that have developed that I think are great for independent creators to fund themselves and try new ideas. And things have kind of, I don't want to say stult, not stultified, but things had kind of become very good for people to figure out how to use those systems and it become much harder for everyone else. And I'm like, what is new? What can we do that's new and different? You launched your newsletter, you've been running it for many months now. And I thought, especially in this super weird time. This is a great time to talk about models that, you know, A, you can partly do from home, B, that don't require, you know, retail presence, that C, are untethered from kind of some of the other realities, but they're also in demand. Um, but I want to start with one question, though, before that is, how are you? How are you doing? I'm I'm actually doing pretty well, um, or, or very well, I suppose. Uh, as we record, healthy. Everybody in my family is healthy. Um, we have space. We have each other, we have our work. Obviously, have had to cancel a lot of plans, but uh, such is life. And um, just hoping that uh, everyone else is there when uh, when we're ready to see them again. Oh my gosh, that's a great. Uh, someone I know just signed off a message to a uh, hobbyist community I'm part of. With um, I cannot wait to hug you all again. And I thought, yeah, that is that's how I feel. I want to hug hug people. I'm a hugger. Um, this is particularly weird time for you, I would think, as well. Among everything else, you uh, have been writing Points Party. That's a newsletter designed to help people uh, figure out travel and credit card points. And um, I don't know if you want to start with that briefly, because that has been, I know that's been a passion of yours, travel, uh, journal. I mean, you've been a, a, a mainstream business technology uh, journalist, um, folks he's worked at, he was the editor-in-chief at Recode, he was an editor-writer at Quartz, he helped create Business Insider. Dan's been around the block a few times, but I know travel has been your passion, helping people figure out, how do you cope with this constraint we're in now, when it's been part of your livelihood and a great part of your interest? Yeah, that that's been weird. Um, I mean, the secret, of course, <laughs> uh, 
uh, it's kind of nice to be in one place for, for a while. <laughs> so, you know, while I, I do and have loved travel my whole life, um, it is nice to not have to, uh, you know, get on a plane every, every few weeks the way I, I was for work um, a few years ago. But it's crazy. Like, you know, e- even just looking at the list of flights that have been canceled or the reduction in capacity, you know, something like 90% or something like that. It's totally wild, you know, and you, you, especially someone like me who dorks out on travel so much, like you spend years looking at these, uh, these network charts and these routes that are being announced and, you know, and then, you know, in one fell swoop, they just kind of disappear. So, um, that's been wild. I'm actually thinking about, you know, what, um, what I can do with points party that would be useful during this period. And I, and I, I think I have some ideas, so I'll be putting out a new issue of that in the next week or so targeted at this, this weird time where maybe there's some escapist thinking about travel right now, but I I can't imagine anyone is seriously booking anything right now. There's not, there's not a lot to book. I've canceled all my trips for the rest of the year. And the beauty of some of these points programs is that, um, you know, you have a currency that can be useful for other things right now. Those are maybe not the, you know, you're not, maximizing your value or whatever some of the points bloggers say but now's a time where if you need a little help paying rent or utility or something like that and you have some points you can cash out i would totally respect that and not uh you know and not hold that against anyone i think now is a time for for being really flexible in in all areas of life i i would say one of the key services you could do is help people navigate cancellation and exchange policies uh, because those are changing, it seems like day to day and week to week. Um, we booked a flight as a family. Uh, we we done we had done all the point maximization we could, and we managed to <laughs> book uh, round trip European flights entirely on miles, only earned by credit card charges. Yay! You know, and it all worked out great. The dream. Oh, geez. And we booked on probably the last possible day that any sensible person would, which was like January twenty eighth. And then we're like, oh no, right? So so. These are with miles and United has a, uh, on United Airlines, it has $125 per ticket redeposit fee. And I have been holding out, canceling the trip in the hopes that United will ex- continue to extend uh, its fee waivers. And there's a few other things like Airbnb, a few other things that we have non-refundable deposits on, although we are careful to book with a lot of de- uh, refundable things. So in any case, that's that's something that I'm sure people are going to want advice in as this stretches on is if you had a trip over the summer, do you cancel now and maybe take a hit because the airlines are not going to let you redeposit? But if you cancel in three months, you know, a, a month before the trip, will they waive the fee and let you just like ca- keep the, the cash on hand in your account with them for, you know, a year or two years or who knows what? Because they're getting bailouts and ostensibly, uh, if we're lucky, they don't go bankrupt and uh, <laughs> and, and yeah. this will all be worth something again someday. I mean, that's sort of the the reason I think they're being kept. Uh, alive too. But any case, I think that's a, that's a rich area to explore, I would imagine, among other subjects you have in front of you. Plenty. Plenty. Um, so let's talk about the new consumer, though. This is kind of what uh, uh, excited me is uh, it's a subscription newsletter. You charge a hefty fee for it. I'm not saying an excessive fee because I appreciate the the work that goes into it. And I like things that charge what they're worth. And, um, you know, I've previously talked on this show. I have an interview, but I've talked on this show about uh, Ben Thompson 
who uh, I would say he pioneered the model, but he was very early in just saying like, look, I'm going to charge $100 a year for my Stratechery uh, newsletter that delivers strategic advice. Normally, you might have to pay ten th tens of thousands of dollars a year to an al uh, analysis firm for instead, you know, to subscribe to this thing. And there's the information, uh, which is also been very successful in building a newsroom while offering a premium product. Uh, what you're doing, I feel, is something it's, you know, it's got a lot of things in common to it. But I wonder how did you come to decide to kind of build this thing for yourself and launch it when you did last year? I'll start at the very beginning. <laughs> uh, well, I'll start in the 90s when I'm a, a high school student, <laughs> middle school student in Chicago, building web pages in HTML at nighttime for fun. And then right on. And then later for, for business, it was uh, my father ran a small advertising agency and I would make his clients' websites for them. Um, and I always loved making stuff, you know, whether it was a sculpture or taking VCRs apart. I was always very entrepreneurial in my approach to my career in, in media. Um, and also when I kind of think about the ideal job for me, it's not necessarily, you know, working at the Wall Street Journal or, or Fortune Magazine or, or the New York Times, I love the idea of making something that's mine and running that. And so, you know, I, I had started my career at, at Forbes.com um, 15 years ago, something like that, and ended up actually leaving uh, almost two years in and starting what became Business Insider with mm -hmm. my colleague and another guy, three of us at a small desk on the first day. And <laughs> It was amazing. It was, it was, you know, and, and in those first several weeks, we were all doing everything. I was building the website. I was running the movable type installation poorly. I was, um, you know, writing. I ended up writing, I don't know, 5,000 posts over the years, helping hire a newsroom, all those things. And when I left in 2011, I, you know, my first impulse was, all right, I'm going to start my own thing. Um, you know, I'd been very inspired by, um, you know, by like John Gruber and Jason Kotke and the kind of indie yeah. blog blogger um, world. And and so I started a, a site called Splat F, um, which was kind of a, a old school Mac nerd site. And I wrote a lot about Apple, the business of Apple. That's kind of been my that was kind of my focus of my first at least 10 years of my career. You know, I started writing about uh, mobile handsets and telecom uh, two years before the iPhone came out. So it was it was a great time to be on the ground floor of the smartphone revolution, of the App Store, and how that changed literally everything. So I started this site, and it was doing really well, but it was based on advertising and sponsorships. And that just wasn't the right business model for a niche publication starting in 2011. You know, mm -hmm. Gruber and Kotke and, and some of the sites that had been well established by then already had solid revenue streams. But starting from scratch, even in 2011, advertising was was really tough. Advertising is really optimized for huge things, you know, really big publications, platforms, businesses like that, where if you're a niche analyst, your goal should not be to get tens of millions of page views and display all those ads. Your goal should be to be really meaningful to, you know, the community of people who need you the most. What's ironic is in 2011, that's when I shut down my Wi-Fi networking news site because I had spent a decade reporting daily with my own sites on Wi-Fi and all advertising and sponsorship based. 
uh, and I hit the wave of Wi-Fi in the late 2000s, and then it became all the municipal Wi-Fi sort of disappeared, and uh, cellular got better, the iPhone came out, and Wi-Fi just became oxygen instead of a thing you had to understand, and it totally went away. But it was weird to watch because I was exactly that. I did not have – I wasn't doing subscriptions. I kind of wish I'd been an early entrant in figuring that out. And be, Me too. <laughs> Maybe I'd still be running oh, splat yeah. out. But, but I was an early Google Ads. When Google started AdSense, I was one of the first – customers, I guess. And when Federated Media started up out of Boing Boing, they took me on as an early client. So I got this weird surge of advertising for niche, but very, you know, relatively small audience, like hundreds of thousands of readers a month on a really dedicated and focused topic. But that all petered out. You know, there was kind of that bloom and not only the topic I was writing about, then we had the 2007-8 recession. Then we had kind of the bloom falling off the rows of low volume strategic stuff that wasn't behind a, a paywall, wasn't an analytics firm. So you're coming into that 2011 is kind of that that point. It was not an inflection point, but I think we'd already passed it. And it was really hard for me to accept it. I remember very distinctly thinking, gosh, darn it, this was working five years ago. Why isn't it working now? Right? Well, and I had this ad network that was, was great. And they were, you know, they were very supportive and they were, um, you know, they were paying me well for mm -hmm. the rights to sell ads on my site, but they were putting flash ads on the site that didn't work for half my readers who were reading oh, on iPhones. So yeah. anyway, it was, it was a weird time. Um, I, it was fun. And, and then I ended up getting an opportunity to join, uh, Quartz, which was a really, really innovative publication, possibly run by someone you, were yeah, you found by or something? my friend yeah. and yours, Kevin Delaney. We, yeah. uh, he was, when I was in college, he was a freshman when I was a senior. We worked on the same newspaper, weekly paper. And I was like, man, that Kevin is pretty awesome. I guess he'll go somewhere some days. He always, is amazing. Always the nicest person in the world. Always. And always pretty brilliant. And I think Quartz <laughs> very yep. ably demonstrated that under his leadership. Yeah. And that was super fun. It was a chance to um, work somewhere where, you know, the journalism was A plus important, but so mm -hmm. was the making of the craft of the user experience of the newsroom you know we had uh it, this was radical then but now it sounds kind of kind of duh but we had computer scientists in the newsroom with us doing oh, yeah. data analysis yeah. and building tools and building you know a tool called chart builder which was open sourced and used by lots of newsrooms it was a it was a really wonderful time and place to be there and then I later went to Vox Media, but th this whole time I've been thinking, like, man, I really want, I really want to start my own thing again. I got an indie band. I need to start this. Totally, you know, yeah. this major label stuff is fine, but I don't own myself, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and you know, and that's when I had seen Ben Thompson start Stratechery and launches with a hundred dollar subscription, and I went, hmm. <laughs> oh, interesting. You know, and. Let's be clear, like subscription media is nothing new, like, you know, right. generations of subscription media. Um, when I worked at Forbes.com, there was a whole floor of people who were doing uh, investor newsletters that I'm sure they charged a lot of money for. There's obviously consumer subscription media um, in, in every genre. And then, of course, trade publications, which were – Probably a lot of people were getting their subscription fee waived, but at any rate, mm -hmm. they had they had subscription offerings, and I had seen this little boom starting to take place. Ben, uh, another guy named John Ostrauer, who was the Wall Street Journal and later CNN aviation correspondent, oh, yeah. had started his own publication called The Air Current, 
this guy who started off as one of our commenters on Alley Insider under a pseudonym started <laughs> an Apple analysis publication called Above Avalon. These were oh, all charging. Yeah, yeah. yeah, these were all charging in the like hundred to two hundred, three hundred dollar year range, and just super inspiring, especially once they made it past a year. And I was like, oh, okay, this is not just like a dumb idea. This is actually really possible. So I started thinking uh, at that point what I would do and, you know, how I would do that. And and for me, the model made made a ton of sense because I'm one of those people who really loves the craft, again, of building the thing. So, you know, I know how to set up a WordPress site. I know how to install the paywall membership software, which, you know, is is ironically owned by Patreon, but they don't really make a big deal out of that. I don't think I realize that. That's great. Yeah. Uh, memberful is the one that a lot of oh, us use. Yeah, it's a very good uh, over at the Incomparable uh, uh, Podcast Network that I'm part of. It's kind of our hobbyist fun thing. We do have a membership program, and Memberful is you know is it was the way. It's like what can we do? And like this is it. It's easy. Integrates with WordPress. Super easy. Just plug everything yeah. in. Yeah, they collect it's the money. It's magical. Yeah. It really works. Um, it worked on the first try, and Whoa. I was yeah, it was great. Um, syncs up with Stripe and and Mailchimp, and all of a sudden I have a a, a community there. For me, the question was like, what what would my focus be? Uh, I, I'd always been obsessed with this uh, publication about watches called Hodinkee. Um, I, I never really got into fancy watches because just as I was kind of getting into the right demographic of mid-30s male, uh, the, the iPhone or the Apple Watch came out. And I, you know, I, I have worn it every day since it launched. Um so I never got into fancy watches, but I'd always admired this publication that my friend Ben was running called Hodinkee. And I'd always That's would great. say to people, even him, like, oh, I just can't wait until I find my my Hodinkee. Um, and, you know, working at, at Quartz and at Recode, I'd started following this change in how people buy things. Um, you know, I, I say it, how people spend their time and money and – uh, you know, it started with the story I had been reporting about Warby Parker and Casper and some of those big direct-to-consumer brands that were starting out, you know, even some of them are now a, a decade old, but really finding them interesting because they were selling products in a different way. I mean, the products were, you know, a mattress. It was a mattress. Uh, they were glasses. Uh, they were not, you know, radically inventive glasses or, or mattresses, but they were being sold in a, in a different way and to a different generation, I think. And, um, you know, and I had gotten to, to meet some of the founders and interview them for some stories and at events. And I, I just really was taken by this idea of using technology to build consumer brands in interesting ways through digital marketing, through digital communities, through really strong design and identity and and the other thing that was happening was Amazon obviously the the massive growth of Amazon which we have both probably spent way too much time <laughs> thinking and talking about over yes, our lives yes. um especially in Seattle let me tell you especially in Seattle and then and then also you know not just how people spend their money but how they spend their time and and the shift to direct to consumer models in media um you know from Netflix to literally what I'm doing so I thought, you know, there's enough here. It's broad enough, uh, and you know, and things like the future of grocery and and restaurants and food. I figured this topic is broad enough that I'll never get bored, and I'll always have something, you know, that my curiosity is driving me to learn and write about. 
but it's they're all kind of related enough and actually my my parent company my LLC is called semi related <laughs> they're all they're all kind of semi related enough that there are through lines and threads that I could follow through these different industries in a way that would be meaningful and you know and, and my background is in uh, business reporting and analysis you know that would be meaningful to executives and entrepreneurs and investors in this in, in these industries and you know hopefully I'm able to for my $200 a year subscription fee, hopefully deliver thousands of dollars worth of value every year. And that was kind of the, the starting point. That's where I, I wanted to find that space because I think uh, there's all these things. It used to be, well, don't start a blog unless you have a passion. Remember when we were starting blogs? Oh, so many years ago. And it was um, people would ask me about because I was not a, you know, there's a, do you remember uh, Technorati back in of the course. day? Dave Siffrey's Technorati. And he came up with, uh, you know, we'd already had the long tail. I think Chris Anderson had already popularized that or was in the process of popularizing the long tail. And Dave came up with, I think it was his phrase, the the magic middle. So there was the big head, which were in the power law curve, you know, 5% of sites are getting 95% of traffic or or something like that. It's Clay Shirky's famous essay in the power law curve that everyone should read. And I, it's still, it's still as accurate now as it was when he wrote it. So you had those people demanding huge amounts of traffic. And in the blog world at that time, it was, you know, it was cocky and it was boing, boing and so forth. And newspapers and other publications hadn't necessarily got into it. And the long tail were live journal and movable type and all these other kinds of type pad and all these things. And, uh, you know, there were millions and millions of blogs and some of them got 10 views a day. And in Chris Anderson's model in the long tail, he looked at like Amazon. It's like, well, you can buy every book might sell one copy. And I'm like, yeah, but that's only good for Amazon because the publisher that sells one copy of one book a year, it's not great for them. It's an extra copy, but it's really great for Amazon because they aggregated in there. So Dave coining the magic middle was kind of about an area of attention where there was uh, sufficient activity you know, in from the blog world, that was sufficient numbers of people visiting a site that it kind of had some currency, but it wasn't a really huge one. So it couldn't command giant audiences. And my Wi-Fi blog fit into that magic middle. And it was awesome because ad dollars were there. Um, and I, I think, uh, at that time, that was what everyone would be asking about. It's like, how do you create a thing that, you know, it'd be great to create a million view a day site, but how can I create one that even has, you know, 50,000 people coming in a day to see what I have to say? So we fast forward, you know, now almost 20 years from that period, and it feels like we're kind of in this evolving world between, um, you know, you, ha you can have a passion, you have expertise, and there's a lot of stuff you can read for free that is on the topic you talk about. Uh, a lot of publications have kicked up paywalls, although the paywalls might be modest. It might only be a few dollars a month or, you know, $50 a year to access all the articles and from a huge reporting staff. Then there's very premium things that are very expensive. There's several hundred dollars a year or thousands or more that are aimed at investors uh, and often in, you know, institutional level people. They have a huge subscription fee and they hit you know, 100 people. So there's this area that you're exploring that um, feels new to me. That's kind of the reason, I mean, the reason I want to talk about it. But it's also you're coming at it at a point when people are recognizing there's a value they can't pay the super huge fees or may not even know about those publications, but what they want, I guess this is the key point and I, and ask or tell me if you agree what they want, what they're looking for, even though we're probably in an unprecedentedly good time for business and technology reporting, maybe not all reporting, certainly not local reporting, but some of the biggest newsrooms in America, at least have gotten bigger Washington post, uh, wall street journal, New York times, 
having this robust reporting on this space that's growing, what can people not get there that they say, I need to go to this guy who is charging a, a modest, not cheap rate, but not super expensive. How do you tell them you have that missing piece, the thing they can't get from a more mainstream or paywalled media that's out there? Yeah, it's one of the things that led me to do this, actually, because working at a publication, you know, my last job, I was, I was running um, Recode at Vox Media, but I also had visibility into a lot of the digital tech news sites. It was frustrating to compete with mm. the likes of Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, who just had so many more people than us. And you know, the, the reality is like, in, unless you're delivering dozens of scoops a year that could move the markets on public companies, right. um, it's going to be hard to get a lot of people to pay for your product if what you're selling is the information, the what. Right. But what can one person do that 50,000 people at Bloomberg, that machine can't do? is tell you the why and the how and the what's next and the who cares and the what it all means. Mm -hmm. um, yes, obviously those people can do that too. But if you can find, if you can build a, you know, a, a reputation and an audience of people who come to you for your perspective, your lens, either through research and reporting or analysis of the why and the how and the why not, I hope and I think and so far I have found something that people will value enough to pay for. It's still early. It's I'm a year in as of last week and congratulations. Um, thank you. Yeah. I, I mean the, the I'm still here. Uh <laughs> I didn't know when I launched if this would be the kind of thing that I'd get to do for a couple months and then have to find a job. I was lucky, you know, and and I was specifically told not to do a Kickstarter because this was more of a uh, less of a consumer product and more of a business product, but launching with a prepaid annual membership kind of became a Kickstarter for me. And, and even on the first day, even like within the first few hours, I knew, okay, this is my job now. So, uh, better like it and, uh, better be good at it. So I, I was very fortunate, um, uh, in my launch, but, but even since then, um, so far I've found that the stories that, I'm proudest of, and I think the ones that bring in the most new subscribers and and really just I think highlight this the whole point of this model are the ones where I'm doing something that nobody else is doing, and it's not because I have a tip from an anonymous source or anything like that. It's either that I put the mental cycles and um, and analytical cycles into sketching out a future that is you know not the sort of thing you'd read in the seventh paragraph of a wire story or you know i'm the one who had the foresight to ask this person who didn't just put out a press release like to have a, a substantive conversation about something and you know it's those things and there, there's some access element to that and that's where you know to be in the position where i have 15 years of of network and and some access to people has been incredibly helpful for me, but it's those two things that, that have a lot of value to them. Whereas I'm never going to be able to compete. And frankly, I don't want to compete with the giant, uh, commodity of information flow at this point. It's, you know, if you, if you're on Twitter as much as 
I mean, I really should be on Twitter less, and I follow way too many accounts. I think I'm up to like 7,000 accounts. But Same there's problem. Just, I mean, there's just unlimited information yeah, out there. Yeah, So, But you're offering something with a value. I mean, I think you've – I think that's, a, by the way, a fantastic answer. You've obviously even thought about why you're doing what you're doing very very well, of course. Uh, but Because uh, a lot of people, I think um, – I don't want to say a lot of people haven't thought out their business model, but it seems like having an incredibly strong focus, keeping yourself tight, and understanding who you're not – competing with but how you're differentiating yourself that seems key because as you say you know you you can't be a hundred person business newsroom um but you know i think there is that gap i think that's why the information has thrived also which is you know it's i, I don't know if you want to hire more people at some point if this would get bigger and you would have a, a small newsroom like they've done but the information is reporting on technology and it's not like nobody else is doing that it's not like you don't have a you know Nelly Bowles and all these other folks um, you know knocking down all the interesting weird doors and and uh, there's just a huge number of great reporters out there trying to find every angle. Nonetheless, Jessica Lesson has figured out this way to charge uh, you know hundreds of dollars a year and deliver something that is unique. She does. I mean, she focuses I think more on scoops in the sense that they are really digging and kind of running beats, but she's delivered something unique against thousands of other reporters. And that is incredible. And I think by that same token, you're delivering something unique because there are all these different paces of reporting that you know too well, because you've worked in all these modalities, right? And there's, there's reporting that's reactive. Something happened in the market. There's reporting that's anticipating news that's coming. There's scoops. People find something out. Zoom has its latest 15 security holes. And someone writes a story about that because a researcher gave them a tip or they did their own investigation. And then there's the enterprise kind of stuff where someone might spend six months researching a story and detail how privacy leaks are happening in these terrible ways across all major products or whatever. You've, you know, there's a pace that you're setting in this focus that is not a pace you find in newspapers, maybe more magazine-like, but not as much anymore, I think, given the vagaries of the magazine world. And it's, I don't think it's the thing you find on online focused publications at all is, is it's almost like you're walking at a speed that's very useful for other people to walk along with you at. And there aren't a lot of people walking at that speed. Does that does that ring true to you, or am I barking up a wrong tree? Absolutely, that's the goal. You know, to be clear, I, that's that is the goal, right? <laughs> like, that, I, I would say that I hope to accomplish that most of the time, and eventually all the time. And and what's beautiful about this model is that, you know, it, it's very transparent. People are paying me, and I'm writing for them. So. Mm -hmm. I, and I know a lot of them. So they're investing in me and hopefully I'm investing in us. And it's not without conflict too, right? You know, we don't need to get too deep into that, but you know, there, there's a lot of uh, people are always looking for conflicts of interest mm -hmm. in ad supported media. I ask myself, like, am I going to report something really harsh or critical about one of my subscribers? Since many of my members are the people who are running these companies I'm writing about. Um, so far the answer has been yes. Like I have not shied away from commenting on, you know, stories that have come out that are unflattering or worse about some of the companies that I write about whose, you know, founders are paying subscribers of mine. We'll see if they renew. Right. But there's this sort of de minimis thing. It's like if 1% of your subscribers work for a company you write about, it's not the same as if 50% were, then you could be beholden. You know, it might be bad for totally. you if McDonald's decided to buy a hundred licenses or a thousand licenses to uh, subscriptions, that might actually put you in an awkward situation. You might have to think about 
well, if this is X percent of my subscribers, do I actually want to enter that relationship or do I want to actually send them a disclosure and publish something that said that I now receive X percent? I mean, these kinds of questions must you must have come across or these are thought puzzles you've had. Thankfully, nothing big enough that I've done anything different. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I feel like I've really led myself with my curiosity and the beauty of this model is that I, I promise two newsletters a week. Um, I call them newsletters. They're also blog posts. I don't know what they, I, I, I write in a, in a somewhat personal voice. Uh, I, I try not to make it about me. There's too many millennial mm-hmm. journalists who think that everything needs to be a personal essay. I don't right. follow, right. <laughs> I don't follow that. Um, but yeah, people are definitely investing in me and I appreciate that. And I, and what I'm trying to build is, is really a community and not just a readership. Mm-hmm. And so far I would say, you know, the first year was really about just getting going and I'm still learning the nuances of this beat every day. And, you know, I know, I knew a lot about it, but certainly not as much as someone who had been doing this for 10 years, the way I had been writing about Apple and the iPhone. So I think that, uh, I also bring a, and maybe not a pure outsider, but like, a someone who has enough outsider curiosity to the topic that I don't, I don't just accept things as the way they were. So anyway, it's complicated and I like that part about it. Well, I'd say there's an interesting thing too, is that you're, when you say building a community, I mean, it's the wonderful thing about this model and it's, it's a reason I um, am inspired by, impressed by, intrigued by what you're doing and, and by people pursuing variants of this. I mean, Substack is essentially founded a business that's not exactly around this it's sort of tangential and similar to, but it's really not what you're doing. It's it's a different kind of modality, but it's again paid subscription list, sort of, or can be. But it's you don't need a ton of people to make this work. I mean, you know, maybe you'd love to be making millions of dollars a year, and that'd be great. I'd be happy if you did that. I'm not opposed to you making <laughs> making huge amounts of money. But, I'm not opposed to it. I'm not, and I'm not anywhere close to that. Right. But but you don't need. I mean, in a model where having a thousand subscribers could be a really good year. Uh, that is, a, I mean, that's so achievable in a lot of ways. You know, you've, I've run Kickstarter campaigns that have had 1500 people in them and they're not paying $200 a year, but I think the average pledge and that was, you know, 50 bucks for a project. Um, there's, I just did this project. You may, you may have heard me going on and on about the tiny type museum and time capsule. And I said, you know, I could do something that's a hundred thousand things at a dollar each, or I could do a hundred things at a thousand dollars each. And I decided to do the latter. And sure enough, I have like 80 people now who have bought thousand dollar plus collections of type artifacts. And it's a, you know, it's, it's, I know it's wild. It's a unique thing. Amazing. I'm going to sell out the edition, but part of it's, you know, there's an education aspect. There's a history aspect. There's a fetish of object aspect, but my goal was I thought, you know, I could do something that is unique and special and appeals to a certain kind of person, and I don't have to get 10,000 people to sign on to make it work. And this is exactly what you're doing. I mean, this is a much more business-oriented thing. It's journalism. But you've defined a case for your expertise, uh, your your the value of all the time you've put into the field, where people go, sure, it's Dan Fromer. I mean, you know, it's you started this. I'm like, well, I'm not so, you know, I, I, I'm not that deeply involved in that field. And if I was, I would $200, I would pay that in a second because it's exactly what I need. And it supplements everything else that's out there for me, even as a reporter, someone understanding the field. So, and and I'm even not even, you know, I'm adjacent to it. I'm like, sure, I would buy that. Um, So I just feel like you've figured out a way to not have to 
go for the max, right? I mean, $200 a year is a lot of money by some measures. It's nothing by most business budgets for acquiring information and even for many individuals who are working in a space. So it's not a, it's a very easy decision for a lot of people, even at that value. But again, you don't need 50,000 people. It would be great if you had them. It scales to that, but thousands of people would make this a very successful operation. Yeah, you nailed it. And, you know, and I'll get to a point where maybe even this year, although, and, and we can talk about this year, but my thinking was, let's see, let's get to the end of 2020. Mm-hmm. And if, if it's still going, which it will be, think about, is this the kind of thing that I do want to build a small team around, or do I want to keep doing this by myself? And the answer is, I don't know, uh, but I love having the option to do either one. And the math, as you said, is, is precise. <laughs> it's like it, very easy. A, a thousand members would be a great year for one person. Uh, you know, pricing is definitely one of the nuances of setting up a model like this where you really have to think hard. It's, you don't want to change pricing. I haven't changed pricing. I haven't offered a discount ever except to uh, groups. You know, if you want to sign up for a team plan, I give a small discount. But I've been fortunate not to have to run promotions or sales or anything like that. But my, my thinking was, what would someone spend on a nice lunch for us? You know, if we were if we were going to go out for a couple hours and talk about business, you know, I get invited to business lunches or I invite people to them all the time. What would it cost us to to go out for a good sushi lunch for for two? And and I figured, you know what? I think that's around two hundred bucks. So if these are people that I'd probably want to see in person for that nice lunch once a year or so, that was a, a price I felt comfortable asking for, knowing that. Yeah, most of those people would probably be expensing it. Some might not. You know, that's kind of the prosumer right. part of that that audience. And 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 you know, because of the the COVID nineteen, I actually launched with no monthly subscription. It was either two hundred or nothing. I recently just launched monthly as well because I want to be. And if you want to talk a little bit about you know how I'm responding yes, to yeah. the the crisis we're in right now. You know, first, first thing I was actually in Europe. I had to get back into the country, and then the the minute I woke up Monday morning a few weeks ago, I said, "You know what? This is basically all I'm going to think about for you know the foreseeable future, yeah. and certainly this is going to be the main factor in all business and life decisions for the foreseeable future. So I have to dedicate myself to this topic. That's great because no one else has any more experience with it than I do." Um, so I can really jump in with the same force as any other person would be and hopefully be as useful as any other person could be at, at learning and analyzing how businesses will be affected and how consumers um, will change the the way that they, again, spend their time and money because of the situation we're in now. And one of the things I woke up, and this is kind of the beauty of not only being able to fully control my content and production model, but also my business model. I said, you know what? Budgets are getting slashed now. People are going to get laid off. I'm a jerk if I'm telling people they need to pay 200 bucks up front to read my work right now. I'm going to launch monthly subscriptions. I'll do it as an experiment. I'll see how that works for the next few months or well, for one month, and we'll see if we'll see if I extend it. Mm-hmm. But it was something that I could uniquely do because I control all aspects of of my operation. So, um, and sure enough, you know. I'm sure it helps a lot. You know, I see there was definitely um, a retention of my growth rate this past month because of that. And and really just trying to be as useful as possible right now. And 
you know, we'll see how the year goes. It, the unemployment numbers keep coming out and they're super scary. Uh, I write, I, I think and write a lot about the restaurant industry. That's in bad shape. There's a lot of, a lot of questions about everything right now, but you know, again, fingers crossed, I'm healthy. People around me are healthy, right. but it's rare to have this forcing mechanism where, you know, you just have to really think about this one thing and focus on it because it's the only thing that matters right now. You you need to make a living too. I mean, to be very frank, like one of the things we can do in this economy is actually continue to try to have jobs, whether they're self-employed or not, because everything us making, us providing a value for other people to pay us for things allows us to pay other people for things. So there's the the economic slowdown comes in part because people are unable to keep buying things. We are a consumer economy. So if you are providing something that is of value to people, especially right now, that is actually, you know, I, I won't call you patriotic. That's a little bit of an overstatement, but it is, but it is part of what needs to happen uh, for real is that we have to figure it out. Let, let's finish on this transition too, because I think, you know, I'm looking at an article from March 8th Panera's $9 coffee subscription and the art of forming a habit, right? And then overnight, practically, we kind of whipsaw, you know, I started isolating in early March. I have a few minor health things that put me into like a, not a high risk category, but definitely above sort of the baseline. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to stay at home until we figure this out. And, you know, that was like March, I don't know, first or something, maybe a little bit longer. And, and, you know, a few days later, it's like, oh, the whole world has changed. Like looking at your site. Overnight, you know, one article and then the next one is COVID-19. Seattle shuts down restaurants and we move on that scale. That's an incredible whipsaw. It's a whipsaw for all of us to live through. But you've been studying the, you know, the consumer world in general. And as you say, the restaurant world in particular, uh, it feels to me nobody wants to be in the right spot when a pandemic hits per se. We like to be in the spot where we're safe. But I do think that you're ideally poised to talk about our entire redefinition of the consumer economy. I mean, even as millions of people are being laid off, Amazon's trying to hire, the last number was 100,000 people, Walmart 150,000 people. In the Northwest, the first number I heard, weeks after restaurants were being sh shut down, the Seattle area grocery stores were desperate to get like 2,000 more workers in immediately. So it's not those jobs will not replace all the lost restaurant and other work, obviously. Um, but there is a displacement, not just an elimination because people have shifted buying patterns. You're right there. This is your bread and butter, and sometimes literally bread and butter. What are you going to bring to this as it goes on? Because we're, as we face this for months, as industries collapse and rise again, what what are you going to bring and, and tell us about? What are you looking to watch? And so now you can see how energizing that is. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you you described it perfectly. It it really is. It is a profound effect on so many things. Uh, there's a few areas I approach it from, you know, it's actually, it is a little hard because I'm also kind of stuck in my neighborhood here. I'm mm -hmm. not going to risk my health or other people's to travel into Manhattan or anything like that. So, uh, you know, it's been a lot of phone calls and zooms and, and things like that. And, and, and research I'm most interested in a few things. One is what is changing now that will change back. And then mm. what's changing now that won't change back and what's not changing now. Those are pretty basic ideas, but you know, for example, I, I wrote about how, uh, actually podcasting, um, as a behavior has been affected by the pandemic, you know, huge reduction in commuting yeah. and, and travel. And so people are listening to fewer podcasts. Um, 
which is interesting because podcasting had been such a growth category and, and especially in the niche of people who love podcasts, they really love podcasts. So that's one of those things where, and we could talk for another hour about like, well, you know, is, what is the future of work? Is it remote? Is it, you know, all, oh all this God, sort of stuff. So let's not do that. that. Yeah. Let's, but it's such a, let's not say we did, right. but it's the kind of thing where, you know, yeah, I, I have not been on a subway for a month. Um, I have, I have fallen behind on my podcast listening. The minute I can get back on that train, I will probably put a podcast on. So You, you know what I, I'm most fascinated about, and I know I will be able to follow you to find this too, is we are in a crash. We are going to respond. Like this is the first time we've had a global event like this that hasn't meant like factories are destroyed or not just millions of people dying, but tens or even hundreds of millions of people dying. We're all still, most people will get through this. We will lose many. It's going to be very sad but we're not losing uh, 50% of the world's population or 10%, 10%. All the factory capacity is there. All the farms are still operating. Everyone's still doing their thing. And I think there's a, it's not exciting. We can't be excited after this happens, but from where your vantage is at, when things come roaring back, when everyone, when they start, you know, in England, they're talking about a uh, certificate of immunity, right? They'll, they have antibody tests that are reliable. You might get a certificate that that's validated with your ID, be able to go back to work. They hopefully will do that. They're talking about it in the U.S. if it all pans out scientifically as well. So we'll have a bifurcated economy and then people will be like, oh my God, I'm going to listen the hell out of podcasts or will every restaurant be crowd that's still open or reopens be crowded for two years because everyone's been so sick of not eating out. Will anyone have the money to do it? You are right there, man. This is right. Where or you're will at. you want to sit within 12 feet of, you know, and it, <laughs> right. Right. Do new restaurants so... have to have disparate seating, right? Or... <laughs> oh, well, yeah. I mean, you know, especially in New York city, there, there is no restaurant <laughs> I've been to where you're, where you're more than three feet away from the next table. So, yeah, uh, it's, you know, and experience, you know, quote unquote, experiential retail. Uh, are you going to want to certainly not going to want to share the same hand moisturizer sample as somebody else? So what happens to all these stores that are that are being built around shared experience and all this sort of stuff? Oh, what if restaurants say we only let you in if you have your immunity certificate? What if governments support that classes of people who are infected and not before vaccines develop? Um, well, it's totally wild. Well, folks, I hope you will tune in to newconsumer.com where you can find Dan Fromer and either pay $20 a month or $200 a year or read summaries and a little bit of free stuff that he puts out there. Get get a taste of get a taste of the Frappuccino on the top. But I think, uh, Dan, you are, again, one of the most best placed people in the world to follow on Twitter or with New Consumer to understand what is going to happen on the consumer side of things. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. This is The New Disruptors. The theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, and this episode was hosted by me, Glenn Fleischman, and edited by Stephen Schapansky. This episode was recorded in April 2020 and is copyright 2020 A Periodical LLC. It's licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 4.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution by linking back to newdisrupt.org. I only ask that you don't offer it for sale. Thanks for joining me. Check back at newdisrupt.org for future episodes or subscribe to New Disruptors in your favorite podcast app. All of our back episodes remain available on the site and via the feed. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.